And again this week, we have our ray of sunshine. And we love when Ray is here. He gives amazing message. And uh, thank you, Ray, for being here with us. I'll thank you in advance for your message. I know it will be good, a message from God. And uh, thank you. Well, thank you, Bonnie. And uh, thank you all for taking the time to be here uh, this morning. And uh, let, me, let me just pray before I begin. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to share with your people the truths of your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help me in my weakness. Father, you would help all of us that he would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and understand, O oh Father, the wonder and the beauty of your truth, and that, Father, truly it would become the foundation of our lives. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the beautiful weather that we've had this week, and uh, even as the forecast going forward, we're just so grateful in November to be enjoying sunshine. Thank you for your grace. Amen. Well, last week, if you were not here, I'll just recap a little bit. We talked about thinking about your thinking, <laughs> which is something that um, maybe we don't do enough of. But the truth is, is that your Mind is always, always working. There are thoughts going through your head at every moment that you are alive. Even when you're asleep, there are things going on in your mind. How many can relate when you wake up? Your mind certainly hasn't been idle. Sometimes you can tell and sometimes you remember some of the thoughts that your mind was thinking, and they're pretty weird, right? I don't know if you remember your dreams. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But it never stops working. There is thoughts that flow in your mind, and you never stop thinking thoughts. And it can be described as a flow or a stream, and Jesus actually referred to that in the Gospel of John, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that, uh, but uh, that's another sermon. But how do we know what goes on in our minds? Sometimes it's revealed by how we speak. Wise counselors are trained that when you come into their office and you speak to them, they're going to listen for the words that you repeat again and again. The words or the phrases that you repeat often indicate or are an indicator of the patterns that have developed in your mind. And, and that's where a counselor can help you to discover them and see them for what they are. But we need to be people. Before we get into any counselor's office, we have the great counselor living within us if we're followers of Christ. And he wants us to help us to think about our thinking, because if our, our, our thinking is stinking, it isn't good for us. <coughs> Jesus talks about this. There was a controversy. The religious people wondered why 
his disciples weren't instructed to follow the traditions and, and wash their hands or wash the way they were uh, supposed to do. And Jesus had to explain to his disciples what, that, hey, it's not what goes into your body, because what goes into your body, what you eat, it all comes out in the end. He said, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from where? The heart, from the mind. And this is what defiles us, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15. Your thoughts are important to God. And as we said, Proverbs 4.23, be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life. Guard your heart is another translation. I just love this translation because it really communicates the truth that is found in that passage. One of the things, now I have so many different directions that I could have gone, a dozen different directions after sharing that kind of, laying the basis uh, last week, and uh, I, I struggled with where, which direction to go. But I decided that uh, one of the things that we need to do is we need to learn how to deal with discouragement in life. Some of us more than others, but all of us, at times, are going to have thoughts that kind of spiral down. It's part of one of the problems that I have. You know what a spiraling thought is, right? You know what a, a, a spiraling thought pattern is? It's when something happens to you. Let's say, right, you lost your favorite uh, you know, book or something like that, and you can't find it. And then you start thinking negative thoughts, right? You think, well, I can't find anything. What am I doing? So blah, blah, blah. And you start spiraling down. And your mind starts to take you down. And soon you're so discouraged because of the pattern that you've kind of followed in your own mind that you, you feel like you just don't even want to get up anymore. And it can be very depressing. How do we stop? How do we stop the spiral of discouragement, because, see, the other thing that can happen is we can have an upward spiral as well, where we begin to think positive thoughts. And I don't think that you think positive thoughts just for the sake of being positive, or the whole idea, oh, just be positive and positive things will happen to you. That's just not real. But what we do need to understand is the framework in which we live as followers of Christ, that there is a God who loves us, that there is a God who's on our side. And it causes our minds to think, when you get up in the morning and you think about how good he is, how gracious he's been, when you recall the good things that he's done for you. Anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But the, the reality is, is that every great person in the Bible experienced tremendous discouragement. One of the great comforts to me in reading the scripture is finding that God preserved their discouragement for our benefit. One of the, my favorite books in the Bible is the Psalms, and there we find just not just, oh, praise God and thank God from all things whom heaven flows. It's so wonderful. He's so good. We don't just see that. We also see the other side. We also see real people struggling with real issues. We hear David saying, 
Why am I so discouraged? Why am I sad? Why art thou downcast, O my soul? I will put my hope in God. He's struggling. And I love that. I really do. Because it tells me that these were real people who were struggling with real issues, the same real things that we've got to struggle with in our lives. So what I want to share with you today, and, I, and uh, those of you who wish to follow along, I sometimes share a little bit too much stuff all at once, and I apologize for that. So what I, what I did to try and help you follow along with me is I, I made an outline, and uh, thank you, Glenn, for copying that for me uh, this morning. And, and you can fill in the blanks and, and follow along if you wish. If you don't want to fill in the blanks, that's okay. It's okay. You just listen, that's fine. But Paul, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is very instructive. Paul deals with issues. But I love 2 Corinthians. It's Paul's more emotionally revealing book. And I really love 2 Corinthians for that. Paul gets really raw and open with the people of Corinth in 2 Corinthians. And here we find in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul really reveals to us seven things that help us to defeat discouragement in our lives. Because we're all going to face it from time to time. And if you, if you think that being a follower of Christ means that you never have discouragement, that's really not that healthy. It's not all praise the Lord all the time. We need to understand there's going to be times when we face discouragement and sometimes very deep discouragement in our lives. Well, how do you defeat that? How do you deal with that? It is, it is, it is precious to God, and he wants to use it for his glory. But how does that happen? So I'm going to just give you seven things. I'll try to get through all seven. If I don't, well, hey, I'll just tell you where to fill in the blanks, and, and uh, you, can, you can study it when you go home. So I'll do my best here. I think I started at about quarter two, right? When do you guys usually end? About quarter after? When you're done. <laughs> yeah, when I'm done. Listen, that's a problem, right? That's a real problem that I have. I never know when to stop, right? So anyway, all right. I'll, 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 I'll try to be gracious. As God is gracious to you, I'll try to be gracious to you. Number one, the first thing Paul tells us here in this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, never forget how much God loves me. Paul says, God in his mercy has given us this ministry and work to do, talking about his ministry to the Gentiles. And that's why we do not become discouraged and never give up. That's verse 1. Your number one purpose in life is to love God and enjoy him. You know that? It's the first question and answer in the catechism. Some of you might know that as well, right? What is the purpose of man? Your job, your first purpose is to love God and enjoy him forever. We all understand. Most of us, I think, who are here at church this morning would understand that our job, we've got to learn to love God, right? We all understand this task. But I would say there's something that we often miss before we get to that, and it makes it difficult to, to do that well. And that is this. I would say before you 
set yourself to loving God, the more important thing is that you let God love you. We love because what? He first loved. Right? We all, should, many of us know that, that verse in 1 John. But what does it mean? We know what it means to love God. We're told that. Probably you've heard that. Man, you've got to get out there and love people because when you love people, you're loving God. We've got to serve each other. We've got to do all these things. We've got to love God in all these different ways. We're constantly being told how to love God. Worshiping him, reading his word, all these different things. Let me ask you, do you let God love you? Do you know, have you tasted of his love? How do you let God love you? Well, let me just give you a few things, all right? Because this could be another message altogether. And I'm really trying hard not to go on and on and on. But every one of us has a different personality, a different makeup. But broadly speaking, we, we fit into probably about a dozen different, um, maybe some would say nine in the Enneagram or whatever uh, you want to use for discovering who you are. But there's going to be certain things that really fill your tank, depending on your personality. If you're, if you're a more introverted person, reading in a quiet place will really soak your heart. It will fill your heart. And you will feel loved by God because you've got that nice, quiet place. And you really treasure those times when you're away from those crazy kids and all the demands of life and all the rest of it, right? It fills your tank and you feel loved by God when you're doing that. Some people, it's quite the opposite. When they're in fellowship with other people, they're more extroverted. They love the connection and they, when they feel that connection with other people, it just reminds them of how good God is and how wonderful it is that these people are in their lives and, and, and they get filled up. Some people, you know what? It's when they're outdoors. When they're outside, they find, oh my, they see, they, they look, and they, they ascribe all the beauty that, that they experienced to God, and it really stokes the fire of their heart, and they are made more and more aware that, oh, how wonderful God is. I don't know, but that regularly happens to me. And I look outside, and I, I see a scene in the countryside or over the lake or somewhere else, and I think, oh, God, how good you are. How amazing you are. You, you made this. Some people, music is their thing, and it really helps them connect in a deep, deep way with God. Whatever it is, we need to understand ourselves 
and be still and know that he is God. We need to allow God to love us. And when we deeply know that, that's when we begin to be able to love in return. So that's the beginning point. We're okay over here, Roger? You're good? All right. We're not going to burn the place down or <laughs> cause disaster or something like that. All right. So that's number one. Never forget that God loves you. And let me tell you something. This is something that people really struggle with. Let him love you. And if you experience his love, it will allow you to love him in return. And there will be this wonderful upward spiral that begins in your life. The second thing Paul says is don't fake it. We don't try to trick anyone, Paul says. We don't twist the word of God. Instead, we teach the truth plainly, showing everyone who we really are. Then they can know in their hearts what kind of people we are in God's sight. Verse 2. Did you know that God didn't make you to be someone else? When you stand before him, you won't be asked, why weren't you more like so-and-so? When you stand before God, he says, why weren't you more like you? God made each of us uniquely. And he's got a purpose and a mission for each of us to complete. And he doesn't want us to try and be like someone else. And that's, that's where we get into trouble is we start comparing ourselves to someone else and we try to be like someone else and we wish we were more like someone else and we waste a whole lot of energy and we kind of fake it a little bit to try to be like someone else. But that sucks up a lot of our emotional energy and it causes deep discouragement because God didn't make us that way. He didn't make us to be just like that person, maybe that person that you hold in great high esteem. God made you to be you. And he wants you to be fully you, alive in him, doing his work uniquely the person that he has made you to be. Another problem that we have is it takes a lot of energy, emotional energy, that often leads to discouragement is when we try to please everyone. There are people who in their personality are more naturally people pleasers. But we have to understand that that is an impossible task to try and please everyone. Even God can't please everyone. Right? There's a bunch of skiers right now in Bruce Gray County who are upset that the weather is so warm, why can't the ski hills open sooner? Right? I don't know. Have you ever seen that? The Calvin and Hobbes. I, uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, cartoon guys was uh, a guy named Bill Watterson, and he wrote this cartoon. Uh, and anyway, Calvin would march out in the middle of the fall out to the middle of the field, and he'd look up at the sky, and he'd say, 
And then he'd see one little snowflake come down, right? And he'd say, is that the best you can do, right? <laughs> He's waiting for winter, and he can't wait for winter to arrive. Now, personally, I'm not that way at all. We could skip winter, and I'd be a happy camper. But anyway, God can't please everyone. I mean, this Sunday, some people are going to be praying their football team wins, and another people are going to be praying their team wins. You know, God can't please everyone, neither can you. What God desires from us is for us just to be real. I mean, real with tact, real with consideration. But God wants us to be real when we are discouraged, when we have uh, uh, difficulties. God doesn't want us to fake our way through it. And there's this huge temptation in the Christian community to kind of fake it until you make it, right? It is not what God desires for you. Why is it that we struggle? Why is it that we have such a hard time just being authentic, just being ourselves? I think it's often the big boogeyman is fear. We're, we're afraid. We're afraid of what might, people might think of us. We're afraid of what people might do. We're afraid that people might reject us. Don't fake it, Paul says. All right, number three. Third point, Paul says, in verse five. Remember, it's not about me. It's not about me. Listen to what Paul says in verse five, Second Corinthians. He says, our message is not about ourselves. It is about Jesus Christ as Lord. We are merely your servants for Jesus' sake. The first four words, I don't know, many of you have probably read the book many years ago now, The Purpose Driven Life that Rick Warren wrote, a book that has sold 50 million copies worldwide. The very first four words, do you know what those words are? How many of you know? It's not about you. First four words in that book, and he did that on purpose because we live in a world that tries to tell us all the time that it's always all about us and you and your appetites and your desires. It's all about you. God wants you to reorient your life. If it's all about you, I am telling you, it is going to lead to discouragement in your life because you will never have enough of what you think will make you happy. When you focus on yourself, you will be frustrated and it will lead to discouragement. God cares about you, but he doesn't want you to be solely focused on yourself. It's not about you. God cares more about why you do what you're doing than what you do. Does that make sense to you? God cares about your motivation. Why do you do what you're doing? Is it guilt? Is it greed? Is it fear? I always used to like to say to our congregation in Concordia years ago, I always used to say, hey, man, Whenever we took up the offering, I, I don't want you to give if you're giving out of guilt. I don't want you to give if you think, boy, yeah, if I give this, 
man, I'm going to reap a hundredfold. Oh, yeah, baby. Right? More for me. Right? I don't want that. I don't want you to give because you're afraid if you don't give, something disastrous might happen to you. The things that really matter, the things that count for eternity, are the things that are motivated by what? They're motivated by our love for God and his love for us and our security in that. When we know his love and we know his grace in our lives, then, then we are motivated by something much more deep. When we're motivated by guilt, greed, or fear, it's still selfish because we're still the focus, the center is still us. How do you know? You might be a little too self-centered. Let me ask you this question. Ah, oh, there's hundreds of ways that you could know. But let me just give you one example of how you can kind of think about what you're thinking, okay? Let's say you get an invitation to go to a party. Let's say that happens actually this year. Who knows, right? And, uh, and, and, and I want to, I just want to, you know, you walk into the room. I want to ask you, what, do you, what are you going to be thinking about? Or maybe just before you even get there, what are you going to be thinking about? Are you going to be thinking about, okay, boy, I wonder how I look. Do I look, well, what are, what are people going to think of me with this outfit on? Am I dressed up enough to wear a tie? Should I wear a tie? Oh, maybe I shouldn't wear that dress. Maybe I shouldn't do my hair this way, whatever, right? Is that you? If that's you, you might be the center of your own world, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful you walked into a room and you thought to yourself, boy, there's all these people here. God, help me to be sensitive and be aware maybe there's somebody who needs some encouragement today. Wouldn't that be freaky? Instead of thinking about yourself, you walk into a room thinking about, how can I be a blessing? How can I encourage someone? How can I see somebody who may need some help right now? That's cool. But that's again, right? Paul says, we're not, we're, it's not about us. Paul says, it's not about us. It's about God being a blessing to others. I want to encourage you to start to think in a new way, think about the things you think. Why do you care so much about certain things? Why do you focus on certain things in your life? What is going on inside? Think about it. Think about it. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about what I desire. It's how can I be used by God to be a blessing. Number four. Relax in your limitations. Maybe, I, should, I don't know, I struggle with the word relax. Maybe accept your limitations. Paul says in verse 7, we are like clay jars in which God's treasure is stored. The real power comes from God and not from us. What Paul is saying here in that verse is we need to have a realistic view of ourselves. You need to understand that you have some very serious limitations. You only have so much energy. You only have so much time. You only have so much you can give. And that's the other side of, of love, right? 
Love doesn't mean you're a doormat and you do whatever somebody else wants you to do. There's, there's being, loving, uh, there's another message, but loving is also knowing how to hold on to yourself. It's sort of like the lifeguard principle. The lifeguard does not jump into the rushing water and end up drowning themselves, right? They need to know, they know, know that they need to hang on to themselves at the same time as attempting to help those who are in need. Anyway, that's another message, right? Because sometimes we get, uh, it bothers me, sometimes we get the message in church that self-giving is the only, that's all love is. It's a lot more than that. And there's the other side of self-giving we need to have to give, right? And in order to have to give, we need to be able to hang on to ourselves and fuel ourselves and allow, anyway, another message right there. I I apologize for that uh, digression. Anyway, we need a realistic view of our limitations. We need to understand that not everybody who comes to us, not every problem that comes our way can be fixed. Did you know that? Not everything can be fixed. Do you know your limitations? Do you know your weaknesses? What are your weaknesses in life? Some of us, if we're asked to give a list of our weaknesses, can give a long list. Others, a very short list. Our hard time with that. It is very important that we understand our limitations and our weaknesses. And often I find, well, this is, you know what, take it for what it is, my experience, right? But my experience is, is when you're young and you're starting out in life, at first I didn't think I had any. Yeah, baby. Right? I'm the gift to the world, right? Then I discovered my limitations, my weaknesses, and then I denied them. And then I hid them. And then, well, when I couldn't even hide them, I had, to, I had to learn to rationalize them and excuse them. But eventually, by God's grace, over time, eventually, we learned to accept them. Then I learned that when I am weak, he is strong. Then you're getting there. Then you understand it isn't your strength that becomes a blessing. It's your weakness. It's so counterintuitive. Oh, that we would have more people who are more real in their walk with Christ, in their journey, in life. You see, what Paul is saying here is God only uses flawed vessels. I love the jars of clay. Where does the light come out? If there's a a candle in a jar of clay, where does the light come out? It comes out where it's cracked. And isn't it amazing that God has, you look in the history of the church, you look in, in church history and you study it a little bit, and you find that, wow, there were some fantastic people that God used who were seriously, seriously, seriously flawed. They had big cracks. God uses broken, flawed vessels. And humility is not denying your strengths. It's not pretending you don't have any strengths. That's false humility. You you may know your strength, but it is also being honest about your weaknesses. God works most powerfully through our weaknesses not our strengths. 
Number five, got to keep moving here. You know, I think the clock has stopped at the back there. Is that a sign? We're in for the long haul this morning. Is that what that is? I, th I think it has, my goodness. Looks like it hasn't moved at all. I got extra time, all right. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Number five, use your pain to help others. I love this passage from Paul. We often suffer, he says, but we are never crushed. Even when we don't know what to do, we never give up. In times of trouble, God is with us, and when we are knocked down, we get up again. Verses 8 and 9. And verse 15, all these sufferings of ours are for your benefit. And the more of you who are one to Christ, the more there are to thank him for his great mercy, and the more God gets the glory. Paul is talking about redemptive suffering. In life, you will have suffering. But suffering isn't automatically redemptive. You can suffer and become totally knocked down on the floor, discouraged. Or you can suffer and become arrogant. I mean, it isn't as common, but there are people who, because of what they suffered, they have this air about them that they, they feel they're somehow superior to others. Redemptive suffering becomes redemptive when we use the things that we have suffered through to be a blessing to others. God never wants you to waste a hurt. You will be hurt in life. There's always going to be blessings in life, and there's always going to be difficulties and hurts and troubles. That's, it's like a train track. You've got to have both tracks. Because we're not yet, Jesus says, this isn't heaven, right? In this world, you will have what? Trouble! Oh, I'm glad Jesus said that because we all know the reality of that, don't we? But the troubles we have, the suffering we have, can be redeemed. How do you never waste a hurt? Well, I believe your greatest ministry will come out of your greatest hurt. One of the great examples in history of that is the story of, of Bill Wilson, the guy who founded AA. I mean, how many people have been blessed by AA? And Bill Wilson decided he was going to uh, take his alcoholism and he was going to uh, really, he used biblical principles, right? The surrender principle and all sorts of other principles to help people see the pathway to sobriety. And man, I mean, he started something because of his difficulties, his addiction to alcohol, and it continues to this day, and it is a blessing to many, many thousands, if not millions of people who have overcome their addictions because he decided to use 
what he suffered through to bless others. I don't know what your hurt is. I don't know what your deepest hurt is in life. But it doesn't happen automatically that your suffering is redeemed to be a blessing by others. You've got to be, first of all, honest with God. That's the first step in AA, right? Is admitting your life is unmanageable, that you can't do it without God. It's the counterintuitive first step, right? Because we keep trying to fix and we keep trying to mend and we keep trying to do and trying to manage and sometimes even trying to manage other people and it just doesn't work for us and we get frustrated and we get discouraged. Again and again and again we get discouraged. And God says, just just relax. I'm in charge. Surrender to me. Admit, you can't manage yourself, let alone trying to manage other people. Allow me to have the steering wheel. Give it to me. Allow me to be in charge of your life. Don't do what you think is right. There's a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, where does it lead? Yeah, to death. So, be honest with God and say, God, I need your help. Be honest with yourself. That's part of being honest with God. And then, how did Bill Wilson begin that wonderful ministry of AA? By being honest with others. All of a sudden, he found that many alcoholics had many things in common, many ways of thinking in common. And they started to identify these things, and they started to, to collate and put it together and... and, and, and uh, it was amazing how it all came together. God wants to use your hurts, your disappointments, your discouragements to bless others. And God will do that if you allow him to do that. I remember uh, when I was just a young man, I had broken my neck in a motorcycle accident. And I wore this horrible device, which was screwed into my head in four different places. And uh, it had bars that went down to my shoulders, and I wore this sort of uh, vest, and it basically lifted my head off my neck and prevented my neck from moving so that the bones that were broken wouldn't drift into my spinal canal and cause me to be paralyzed for the rest of my life. And uh, I hated being in the hospital, so after a short time, after the appliance was put on, the halo they call it, I was no angel. Uh, they, uh, they, they sent me home, and my dear mother looked after me. My mom was so great, I'll tell you. She was amazing. And uh, I thought, man... I was a Bible college student. I was doing God's will. I was learning how to become a useful minister in, in the world. And how could this happen to me? I'm, I, I get it, God. I'm following you. How could the, you know? And, and, and all these thoughts go through your head. And, and I remember how immature my thoughts were at that time. 
and yet having to come to grips that indeed this had happened, and it was such a random accident that happened. There was, I couldn't blame myself, or I couldn't blame someone else. It was just one of these random things that happened. And uh, remember, uh, I was sitting at home one day, and a neighbor, uh, well, one of, my, one of my colleagues, I had been working at, at what was then OPG, not, not Bruce Power, and uh, I'd been doing a summer student job, and one of the guys that I had befriended on her staff called me up, and he said, Ray, you got to come over. And I said, what's up? And he said, you got to come over. And, and then he started to explain to me what happened. Apparently, there had been a terrible accident. Two officers were in a cruiser, and uh, they had attempted to stop a car or something, and and uh, the car was, uh, their cruiser was T-boned, and the one officer was killed. And the other officer survived, but he broke his neck, and he was in a halo. And the officer who survived was the driver, and he felt completely responsible for the death of his co-worker. And I remember how horrified we all were when we heard about this terrible tragedy. And I remember, so my neighbor, my, my friend was neighbors with the officer, and the officer had tried to commit suicide because he was so discouraged. And um, thankfully, his neighbor thought, I, I think I can help him. I think I can encourage him a little bit. And he called me up and said, would you go and see him? And I was like, oh, boy. I'm just a little pipsqueak who I'm only finished two years of Bible, what do I know? All of a sudden you feel completely inadequate and somebody's in a crisis like that. But I said, oh Lord, help me. I'll, I'll do it. And I went. I'll never forget sitting with that guy and being honest with him and him sharing with me his guilt, his sense of responsibility and then wondering what would happen and I was much further along in my recovery from, uh, I still had the halo on, but I was working through all the different uh, stages of the recovery, and I was further along, and so I was able to just help and encourage him. He saw someone else with a halo on who was getting around, and it lifted his spirits enough for a little while anyway. I was just so grateful that I had an opportunity who would have thought? Who would have thought that could be a blessing? There are things in your life, pains and hurts in your life, that you would never think would be a blessing to others. I remember as a pastor, there's so many, uh, I remember there'd be men who had come to me and, and, and some of them were struggling with a certain thing and, and, and But they had to keep it a secret. They had to keep it, you know, nobody had to know. Everybody had to pre- pretend that everybody was good and well and just fine. Thank you very much. And I remember them uh, at one, time, one Sunday, I re- I'll never forget it as a pastor. I'm sitting, I, I, I stand up to preach, and I see the one guy. He was sitting right there, right, and he had this struggle. And he was sitting right next to another guy who had the same struggle. And neither of them knew. Nor did they want anybody else to know. And I thought, oh, God, that's a tragedy, right? 
We come to church and we want to put it on that everything's just fine. When healing is found, what? When we confess. Isn't that what it says in James? When we confess our sins to one another and then we pray, then we're healed. Isn't that amazing? There's something so liberating about being real and honest and it defeats discouragement in our lives and we suddenly realize that the weaknesses we have can be used by God to be a great blessing because we're not alone. There's many others who struggle with the same weaknesses. Isn't that wonderful? God is so amazing. It's so counterintuitive, though. Almost everything, almost everything in the Scripture, almost everything that God teaches us goes against our natural inclinations. It goes against what we would logically think would be the case. The gospel is so upside down. And we need to allow that upside down gospel to permeate us. That's why it's so incredibly important that we learn, that we read the scriptures and that we allow them to sink deeply into our souls. All right. We're at number six. Aren't you glad? Number six, take time for renewal. Paul says, this is why we never give up. That ought to get our attention. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Isn't it wonderful? I love that verse, especially when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror. Oh, my goodness, you can see the deterioration in your body. You ain't 19 anymore, right? But isn't it wonderful? I would never want to be 19 again, even though that might mean that I'd be able to beat my brother in a bicycle ride. That would be sweet, I must admit. And it really appeals to me. So being 19, there is an appeal there. But oh, our bodies are deteriorating, but our spirits are being renewed. God is at work in our physical selves. Hey, we're aging. My hair hasn't always been this platinum blonde color that you see here today, right? I ache in places that I didn't even know existed in my body before. And you're like me. But isn't it wonderful? Even as our bodies deteriorate, we don't have to be discouraged. We live in the cult of youth today. Don't buy into that cult. Don't buy into the idea that you are how you appear. God is at work. He's renewing you from the inside out as he shapes your thinking. We can be renewed every day. Doesn't happen automatically. You need to take time. You need to plug in. You need to allow God to love you. You need to allow God to speak to you. You know, he wants to speak to you every day. Did you know that? Did you know that he wants to meet with you every day? Did you know that? Do you know he loves you so deeply? He's crazy about you. He never stops thinking about you. Isn't that crazy? But that's what the Bible says. Read it. Take time for renewal. And then seventh, we're done. 
Seventh, keep focused on eternity. Keep focused on our eternity. Listen to what Paul says. Our present troubles are quite small and won't last very long, yet they produce in us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. Hallelujah. So we don't look at the troubles we can see right now. Rather, we look forward to what we have not yet seen. For the troubles we see will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. Hallelujah. I love that. Thank you, Paul. We live on earth. Maybe we get 90 years. Maybe we get more. Who knows? These days, people living longer and longer. But generally speaking, most of us aren't going to make it to the century point, right? But you know, one of the things that we forget and we constantly need to be reminding ourselves is, of is we have a limited number of days. It says in, Pro, in Proverbs, not Proverbs, Psalms, it says, Lord, teach me to number my days aright. And what that means is it doesn't mean like you add up. Okay, I've been alive for 113,620 days, and so I, I got this. You don't know how many you have left, right? Numbering your days aright, what, what the psalmist is talking about there is recognizing just how short your life is. Understanding you're going to die. We live in a world that tries to deny death, tries to push it to the side, pretend it doesn't happen. You're going to die. Number your days aright. This life is so, so short an eternity we can't even imagine. But God can use this short life to prepare us for that eternity. How? Paul says, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from beginning to end. He did not give up because of the cross. You know, God never asks you to do anything that he hasn't already done. On the contrary, because of the joy that was awaiting for him, he thought nothing of the disgrace of dying on the cross, and he is now seated at the right hand of God's throne. Oh, hallelujah. That is so wonderful. He went before us. He showed us the way. He suffered in ways that we will never suffer, we will never understand. But he endured to the end. Paul says, let us not get tired of doing what is right, for after a while we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't get discouraged and give up. Galatians 6 verse 9. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. God is at work, even in your weakness, even in your struggles, even in your problems. One of the greatest books um, for suffering, for mourning, that I've come across is written by a guy named Gary Sitzer. He wrote a book called uh, Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Grief. What a blessing that book has been to me. I think I have handed out dozens of copies of that book to other people who have gone through death. I lost my brother when he was 37. I lost my mother when she was only 63. I now lost my mom or my stepmom and my dad 
suddenly as well. I'm telling you, but you know what? You know what Gary Sitzer went through? He lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter all at the same time in a car wreck. And he was a servant of God. He was somebody doing God's work. And as he went through the experience, he had some good friends, thank God. And he had the temerity to write down what he was going through, and it turned into this book. And you know what? It was written way back in like the dark ages, like the 80s, right? The 1980s, right? You know, it's still selling strong today because he journaled and he helped people face and deal with the conundrums and the difficulties. What a blessing his life has been to many who have suffered terrible loss. Corey Ten Boom went through tremendous difficulty. How many of you know who Corey Ten Boom is? Suffered in a concentration camp, was a Dutch lady, and uh, there's a movie made called The Hiding Place, a book called The Hiding Place, and one of her quotes that I love, and I'll end with this, she says this, look at the world and you'll be distressed. Look at yourself and you'll be depressed. Look at Christ and you'll be at rest. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. That you are such a genius. That you are so amazing and you are so gracious. We admit, Lord, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. We, we wouldn't choose to do things the way you do them, but you, oh God, reveal to us the way in which you work, and it, it lights our hearts on fire to know, oh God, that the stuff that we suffer with, the discouragements that we go through, the difficulties that come our way, Lord, if we would change the way we think about them, if we would begin to see you in the midst of them, that, Lord, you can use them to bless the world and bless other people. Help us, O oh Father. We recognize our great need of your help. We pray, O oh Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Bring into our lives so that we don't go through journeys alone. People, oh Father, who would encourage us and walk with us through life. Oh Father, thank you that you allowed yourself to come and take on flesh. And you did not give up, but you went to the cross and you willingly went to the cross for the joy that was awaiting you, which was the redemption of people throughout the world. Thank you, Lord, for loving us that deeply. Help us, O oh Lord, to live in that reality for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.